You're listening to Body of Work, and I'm Hannah Mooney, here to bring you stories of movers and shakers in the sports, fitness, health, and food industries who are known for their bodies. Each episode is a chance to dive into the backgrounds of my guests to discuss how their views on their bodies, athleticism, self-esteem, and more have shaped the person they are today. Many of these stories are those of success, but we don't only focus on the bodies they have. More importantly, we focus on what made them. What was the work it took to get there? And what was the mindset to stay great? Motivation matters most. And so what motivates the people we admire most to stick with the things that make them great? Well, find out here. None of my guests just have a body. They put in the work for all of it. I am on the line today with Catherine Switzer. Catherine, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. It's great to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. For context, Catherine was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon as a numbered entrant. And during her race, you've probably seen the infamous photo where it looked as if one of the race officials was coming to stop Catherine and grab her official bit, which was in fact true. So I wanted to talk to Catherine today about her background as an American marathon runner, as a female in the sports space, as her role as a television commentator and an overall female working for other females as an athlete. So Catherine, thank you so much for being on the line. I'm I'm just delighted to be here. We have a lot to talk about, not the least of which is your upcoming marathon. I'm excited about that. I know. Before we even started the recording, we talked all about the fact that I am scared out of my pants to run my first marathon. So this is like full circle for me to be able to talk to the first woman to run the Boston Marathon because like I've said to everybody the my biggest fear in running this first one is that like I'll actually like it and then what I'll do is I'll want to run the Boston Marathon so now that we've kind of established that that's you know part of the construct of our conversation I I'd love to just kind of talk to you a little bit have all the listeners whether they know who you are they've read your story or they've heard about you or seen you on television commentating Um, Can you just tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, you know, and where you are currently? Yeah, um, actually, I'm talking to you right now from New Zealand. Now, that's another story. Um, I met a gorgeous, wonderful New Zealand runner guy, um, and we got married 33 years ago. And we decided since he was from New Zealand, I was from New York, we divide our time and live in both countries. So it's complicated, but it's also marvelous. But that's that then earlier. I was raised, of course, born in Germany, but my dad was an army colonel, so lived all over the world, but mostly raised in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, Went to high school there um, and then went to college my first two years in Lynchburg, Virginia, and then went to Syracuse University my junior, senior years and on for my master's degree to study journalism. And essentially, my running plays a part in all of those lives, whether it's, you know, uh, suburban Washington or it's Lynchburg or it's Syracuse. They were all pivotal moments in my running. That's unsurprising to hear that that was like a through line throughout your entire life. But when did you start running? Well, I told you about the Army Colonel dad, um, very conservative man. Um, My mother was very, very go ahead and very, very progressive. She was an educator always raised me to be equal to my brother 
um, and always told me, no matter what, you will get a university education, and no matter what, you will always be able to support yourself. Um, it was kind of implied that you can't always trust uh, a guy, but what she really meant was is you, you never can, can uh, do better than be completely independent and self-sufficient. And so, you, so this was a really a dominant thread in my, my growing up years, my childhood. But it was my dad, my conservative dad, who when I was 12 said that I should go out and run a mile a day so I could make the field hockey team, this new event, this new sport that they had at um, our brand new high school, which was being built. And in those days, we didn't have intermediate schools. And so here I was, this little prepubescent kid going into this massive high school with 1,500 students. And um, they had like an orientation for us. And I was put into an advanced stream and I was sitting next to in the in the classroom in an algebra class next to an 18 year old captain of the football team. And here I was, um, you know, still playing dolls when I got home from school. And he was um, getting ready to get a job and get married and when he graduated. So this was, you know, a real insecure feeling for me to to be in the adult world suddenly. And my dad kind of saw that and said, uh, you know, you play on that field hockey team. You know, you're going to be a really good little player, but you got to train. And and I was really insecure. And he said, come on, just run a mile a day and you'll be really good. And a mile a day helped me make the team. Um, but more importantly, it empowered me even more than any of my parents, uh, either of my parents could have imagined. And I didn't even know what it was. I only knew that I suddenly felt full of self-esteem and confidence and even a kind of boldness and fearlessness as I went into this high school. And I think, oh, my God, when I look back on that, I say every little kid in the world should have this kind of victory under their belt every day that I had. And for, for, from that, for that reason alone, my dad, as I said, really other, quite conservative in many other ways, was so forward thinking. And that was the, the biggest moment in terms of launching my running career. So you've been running for 61 years? Yes, I'm 73 now. And I'll tell you, a day that I don't run is a day without magic. And a day that I do run a day is no matter how crappy the rest of the day is. And every runner will tell you this. The day is good because uh, it helps you sort out uh, the stress, uh, put things in perspective, give you creativity and, and put the crap in your day behind so that you can move forward. And at the same time, you get fit and the world of running gives you an enormous sense of family, community and self-possession. It is truly an amazing activity and well beyond running itself. And so you say that it gave you creativity. Do you, do you find that you think, like, do your best thinking while you're running? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if I have an article that's due or a business report or now more scarily, you know, presentation or a broadcast, I need to go out for that run beforehand. Um, the day before or whatever, when you're working on your notes, um, when I wrote my book, it was essential. Uh, you just sometimes you can't quite get the wording you want. You can't express the thought and you go for a run in 10 minutes. It pops into your head. So, yes, that my, my creative thinking is out there. And also it's very hard to be creative because um, you need to explore that creative part of your brain. And if you're stressed with all the grocery lists and kids running around and 
travel and the schedules and all the other things, you, you know, you need to have that space. So definitely running has been, um, I would say life giving to me. I think it's probably the most important thing I've ever done. That's awesome. Do you feel like your body, it's been, you know, constant through your whole life, but as your body has changed just from either getting older or getting through injuries, because it's, you know, it's unheard of for the most part to go for decades without getting injured in some way. But even through all of that, have you noticed your body's been really resilient because this is something that you've fine tuned? Yeah. You know, there were times in my life when I uh, trained my brains out, I was training twice a day, 110 miles a week. Um, and, and I was fascinated <laughs> Because I was always told as an athlete, I was a basic no talent. And I was determined to prove that I could be better than I really exhibited at the, at the time. I mean, my first Boston Marathon was four hours and 20 minutes. And people said, oh, that's just a jogging time. That doesn't count. And I trained and trained and trained and trained. And eventually I ran the Boston Marathon in two hours and 51 minutes. And so then people stopped telling me I was a no talent. But to me was the fascination of somebody who could be a relatively ordinary kind of fit person and emerge as a very good athlete by work. The body is fantastic. And it it's just, we always talk about it being a miracle. But the fact that when you stress it, work it, uh, manipulate it, uh, give it food, give it rest, it it grows. It responds. Interestingly enough, it does this at any age. And sure, does it do it differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, from 12 to 18, my body obviously went through enormous changes. I mean, I, I, you know, I gained something like 20 pounds. I grew six inches. I, <laughs> I became a woman. I had breasts. I had hips. Um, and so the running actually got me through all of that, like just sort of sailing through it. Um, then as I got older, uh, uh, I, I turned into a very good athlete and it was amazing to see how fine down and lean and fast I could be and how strong. And then, uh, you know, through menopause, which I thought I was going to die, um, <laughs> running, <laughs> running was the thing, uh, that made me realize that, Hey, this is just another phase of life. You, you will manage. Um, and you learn to accept the fact that, that, that you, uh, maybe put on a couple of pounds and that they're not coming off as easily and that um, you aren't as fast as you once were. Well, guess what? There's a big difference between 50 and 25. Um, it, and you, it, it helps you go through these processes. I think the most exciting one, though, ever since I was 12 years old, the most exciting one occurred when I was 70 and I ran the Boston Marathon again at age 70 on my 50th anniversary. And I was the first woman, therefore, to run a marathon 50 years after she first did it. Now, that's not testimony to any kind of greatness on my part. OK, what that just shows you is how few women ran uh, 53 years ago. But at any rate, to to run again, run really well to get really back into shape, um, running that marathon, um, I stopped uh, 13 times hugging kids, getting water. Um, eating a banana and I did eight interviews and even with all of that I was only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was age 20 oh so <laughs> to me the that miracle of 
in a way forestalling the aging process or sort of grabbing the fountain of youth again was one of the most enlightening and exciting experiences of my life. Certainly it was the happiest day of my life because it all just came together. And I look, hey, I'm grateful for my health. I'm very, very grateful for my health. Anybody can get injured or get cancer or have a, a breakdown of some kind. And I was very fortunate to even be on that start line doing this, I know. But the reality is, is the more you do, the more you can do. And that at any age, I believe the body responds. We've done amazing things with people who were, have been in nursing homes and are bedridden. Um, and they, of course, become increasingly debilitated when they don't move. And when they were put on weight training programs in this one institution, they actually improved muscle mass by something like 92%. It's phenomenal what the body can do. It's always regenerating. So we need to regenerate it stronger and keep on and keep on and keeping on, as they say. Yeah, something you just said, you just said, um, the more you do, the more you can do, which I just love because it's so true. And I think your career, you know, athletically has proven that. I also think it's so interesting, too, because when 420, oh, my God, I would kill to run a 420 marathon. I just completely put it out of my head that there's even a time from the standpoint that it just you know, just staying focused on what the goal is, which is to finish and to be proud of myself. But um, as you're describing that, you know, it's you. It, what was the term that you used? You know, a know nothing talent or something like that, just which made my skin crawl because I felt like, how can that even be true? What did What did you call? It? I call myself a no talent athlete. Okay, no talent athlete. A no so, talent. A no really a no talent jogger. Okay. Let me go back to that 420 being a jogging time. This just tells you two things. One, that when people ran marathons back in 1967, they were a very strange bunch of people or they were extremely good athletes. And so somebody who, quote unquote, ran as uh, was told that it was just a jogging time, um, a, a 420 didn't really count. They were just um, they were just sort of plodding along. And, of course, the race officials, see, I'm, I obviously still have a burr under my saddle about this because the race official who attacked me in the race and tried to throw me out of the race, when I went ahead and finished anyway, um, he said, her time doesn't really count. It's just a jogging time. I could walk it that fast. Oh and I thought, you cannot walk it that fast. And I said, I thought I did pretty well considering I had a gorilla on my back. <laughs> and it was it was that remark it was that remark that propelled me into saying okay you know i i know i can be better and i and i want to be better out of curiosity but i was i had a very big chip on my shoulder and um and so when i ran the 251 uh this particular official was there uh and had to give me a trophy now, by that time we actually had become good friends but he was extremely impressed and I and I I know that he changed his thinking completely because he suddenly realized, hey, I was really wrong. And, you know, people can improve and, and training is amazing. So anyway, it's, it's yeah. a good story that, that any, anybody can get better. But, you know, that's actually not the point uh, of this interview. The point is, is just what we want to do is to let people know about the miracle of their bodies and that they can do so much more 
But the the real point is is that you can do it. You 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 sh- should not deny yourself doing something that because you have a preconceived notion about your lack of ability. I cannot tell you how many, and I mean hundreds, if not thousands, of women over the years who have come to me at a speech or or more likely a race expo. And they said, you know, I'm running my 10th marathon tomorrow and I cannot believe this is me. She, 10 or 15 years ago, I would never, ever have believed I could do this. And and they they are doing it just the way you're doing it. You know, they start off, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, I'm going to run a mile, then I'm going to run three, then I'm going to run five, then I'm going to run 10, you know, and the miracle happens. It's amazing. Yeah. But, and what I was getting at, too, with, you know, that comment that the race official made was, you know, in some cases, you know, I've talked to a lot of people on here who either, you know, there's this kind of two waves. It's either they were athletes their entire life and they've worked really hard at it and they have like a really unique mindset that makes them, you know, almost like superhero-esque. And then there's an, a completely different set of people who did this wasn't they, they weren't determined to go out and be Olympic champions. They just went out to go be great. And they, you know, that maybe the raw talent wasn't there, but they worked super hard and now they're, you know, at the, the top of their game. And that's something that I find so interesting is that in a lot of cases, talent is, is not, you know, synonymous with grit or hard work. And that doesn't mean that people who are talented don't go above and beyond and don't push themselves. But man, I mean, I will go out for a you know nine mile training run and be like, I literally couldn't run two miles, you know, four months ago. And the fact that I can even do that is mind blowing. So when things get hard or like there's something I don't necessarily want to do, you know, I'm a pretty mentally tough person. I think the people in my life would attest to that, but this is different. This is something, this is a sport that like, it has nothing to do with anybody else. This is, you are with you and you are against you the whole time. And it's actually super empowering. It's not really scary. So everything you're describing is more like there is tangible growth that you can look at. And that's where you have a career, you know, that is, has so many races as proof and so many interactions with people as proof of what that looks like. And I think that that's so bananas that that's, you know, you're such great proof of that. Um, you know, it, it is absolutely true. And um, and I know we were going to be talking about 261 Fearless here in a minute, which is my nonprofit and named after that famous bib number. The official tried to rip off of me back in 1967. The number has grown to become uh, uh, almost a magic cult number, meaning fearless in the face of adversity, because suddenly people um, began who began running had this sense of fearlessness themselves um, because, you know, we all have been told that you're not good enough or you're not really an athlete or you're too slow or you're not cute and you don't belong or you're overweight or you're too old. We, uh, we've heard it all and everybody will tell you why you can't do something. And so. When you go then and run, which is so simple and easy and cheap, and all of a sudden you say, hey, I am somebody. I don't care what you say about me. I, I It's sort of like you, Hannah. I mean, whoever said, well, we know that you can't run. But <laughs> right. Watch the yeah. Face, and you know what? That comment. And, and so it's, it's really about the empowerment. 
And I know, and you know now, uh, it has changed your life so phenomenally in terms of your sense of capability and confidence. This is what we need to get to women everywhere around the world. And that's what 261 Fearless is doing. We, we took that number. We created a nonprofit. It's a series of clubs and an educational program where women get together around the world and um, a, a, a fearless woman will take the hand of a fearful woman and show her how to take the first step. Because that's the hardest thing is to get her, get her shoes on and go out the door or show up, take the first step, you know, get out there. You know, she's and they'll give you every excuse. Oh, I'm too old. I'm too slow. I'm too fat. Everybody's looking at me. And I want to tell her nobody is looking at you. <laughs> but and it works. You know, it works for every woman every time that they, they absolutely are having their lives changed. And I mean, in many countries, so many uh, countries or even your next door neighbor. You know, they live in fear of, of uh, incapability of loss, of, uh, of in all kinds of insecurities, or maybe they're real poverty, violent, uh, uh, social, cultural restrictions. And for so long, we've always said, oh, well, those are the women in Afghanistan or in Saudi or something. Well, honest to God, they're the, it's, the, it's the women and girls next door to you, um, you know, who, who also need this help. And so that's what 261 Fearless does. And, and we're 11 countries now. I'm very, very excited about our organization because um, we're changing, you know, women's lives one step at a time. It's, it's been phenomenal. And in this era right now of, you know, of, of Me Too and, and the sense of often women having a helplessness or feeling incredibly downtrodden, even now as they have for thousands of years, uh, running is the thing that gives them one of the biggest, brightest senses of freedom. Um, and you're saying, yeah, they don't want to be Olympic athletes. You're damn right. I mean, these are women who are the kids are still asleep. So they and they're getting up at four in the morning, five in the morning, meeting their friends. They go for a run so they can get back while the kids are up and getting up and sending them off to school. And then they get off to their job after they fed the dog. And, <laughs> and they wouldn't miss that half an hour out running in the dark for anything because it gives them the sense of empowerment we're talking about. And there are thousands of them and millions of them out there doing it right now. Well, I had read that you wore um, lipstick and mascara to the race when you ran in Boston, that you kept your, you kept your um, like the sweatpants suit on that you had because it was freezing and like sleeting the day of the race. Um, did did anyone at the starting line give you a hard time? No. In fact, they gave me such a welcome. I was afraid that they were going to kind of upset my mojo, you know, because, you know, right before marathon, you kind of want to hunker down and be quiet and just focus on the task at hand. And and, and the fact is, is I, I was afraid that officials would come and give me a hard time. Um, and, and there was a series of coincidences there. I wasn't so worried about it that I didn't have on a very cute shorts and top that I wanted to wear. I, I was confident, totally confident about being able to finish the race because I'd run 31 miles in practice two weeks before. So I, I was good and ready. But I, I did, you know, it wasn't against the rules. Everybody says, well, you were breaking the rules. It wasn't against the rules. I'd read the rule book. My coach had insisted that I sign up for the race. There was nothing about gender on the entry form. Um, and I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm a little worried about this. And he said, you know, the, the reason it's not on the entry form is nobody believes a woman can do it. And I said, well, there was a woman last year who ran. She she 
jumped out of the bushes and ran the race, Roberta Gibb. And he said, well, that's really wrong. You know, you have to register and, and pay your $2 entry fee. I hope that makes you laugh. Um, two dollars. I know. It was two dollars. You can't even yes, buy and you, shop lock. And, you had, and you, had, you had to pay it in cash, too. <laughs> and you had to have a medical certificate. And you had to have travel permits. It was very complicated. It was amateur sport in those days. It was very, very complicated. All kinds of rules that, you know, really restricted people rather than encouraged people. But anyway, um, I had all this stuff in order. And uh, I, I tell you, I was very proud of myself, but I didn't want to broadcast it because I didn't want to. I never liked to, to say I'm going to do something until I actually do it, because then there's always a chance that something will go wrong. And then you disappoint people or you disappoint yourself. But anyway, um, the day turned out to be very sleety and very, very cold and a headwind and really, really miserable conditions. And we all in the race, men, all of these men, were, we were wearing everything we owned. I mean, honestly, it looked like a, a band of refugees with the snow piling up on our shoulders and it getting soaking wet and freezing cold. So I had on my baggy gray sweats and they were the ones I was going to warm up in and then throw away. But I, I kept them on. And um, and but, yeah, lipstick. Um, I remember my boyfriend saying, you should take off your lipstick. Somebody's going to see that you're a girl. And I said, I want them to know I'm a girl. <laughs> I am a girl. I'm here. I'm a woman. <laughs> and, um, and and indeed, we did run into trouble, as as you know, at the one mile mark when the race official saw that I was a woman in his race wearing a bib number. And he just completely lost his temper and ran after me uh, in the race and, and attacked me in front of the press truck, if you can imagine this, because the press truck was right in front of us. And um, so the whole incident of him attacking me was re recorded. Um, everybody knows the story. My boyfriend hit the official instead and sent him out of the race. And and my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. It was a terrible moment. It's hilarious in the retelling, but it's it was a terrible, terrible moment. But um, to answer your question, the, the, the men in the race all around me were wonderful. And I swear to you, women's running wouldn't be where it is today if it hadn't been for men who run. Because the men who run, you know, we, we don't care, you know, what color or gender or age or whatever you are, you're running. And there's, the road is big enough for all of us. Who cares? And so they were coming by me and saying, hey, go for it. We're with you the whole way. Hey, do you have any tips for my wife or my girlfriend? Uh, I really love her to start running. She would love it. Uh, and uh, I think like me, they just wanted to pass the joy on to, to everybody else. So um, naturally, the, the whole uh, scene changed, the, the mood when the official attacked me, because then it didn't become joyful. It became a matter of really having to prove myself. And I told my coach that I was going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I had to, because I said, if I don't finish this race, nobody's going to believe women can do it. And I have to now finish the race. So the, the whole idea of going to Boston was um, not to make a political statement. It was a reward from my coach who uh, months before hadn't believed any woman anywhere could run a marathon. And when I showed him in practice that I could do it, he said, you know, he would take me. So that was a huge turning moment in his mind, you know, being a 50 year old guy who was willing to put his reputation on the line and take this girl to Boston. So these were all amazing growing up stories. They are stories of epiphanies. 
Um, and they all sort of transpire through this uh, one race at first and the, the training leading up to it. So it was really, really amazing. Well, I, I think it. I think one of the, the most important things, I, I just want to make sure I say this, probably the single most important thing in that event and probably in my life really was the decision to finish the race. Um, I was only 20 and in the face of a lot of pressure, I said to, said to my coach, I am finishing this race no matter what, because he obviously he looked at me and he's was, the look was, what do you want to do? And of course, I was terrified. Of course, I was scared. And I, you know, and I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. People were yelling at me and saying, what do you think you're doing? What are you trying to prove? You know, you don't belong here. Um, and for that split second, I wanted to kind of cover my face and go home to my mom. But I thought, if I do that, nobody's going to believe I'm serious. So I have to finish. So that was very, very important. I think all of us have a moment in our lives when we have a decision to make like that. And I just hope that, you know, you just take a deep breath and say, I can do it. I'm going to make the right decision. Yeah. Do you feel like that? I mean, that point is so profound. Do you feel like you, when you were going through the race, it's not like it wasn't hard just because you made the decision to finish. Doesn't mean that it was like, Oh, all of a sudden it's going to be really easy to get to, you know, 26.2. But did you, it was it because you kind of had a, you had a very definitive thing you needed to do and you knew what that was and that's where you were shooting at. And then that's how you kept racing was being focused on that one thing and moving towards it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, I was planning on no matter what finishing anyway, but, but that was, it was going to be a more fun experience. This was now I had to do it. It didn't mean that I didn't, share a couple of jokes or chit chat back and forth with Arnie and a couple of my teammates. Um, but, um, quitting or failing or getting injured or getting diarrhea or getting the bonk and just being unable to continue simply was not an option. It was just not an option. And I refused to even consider that it was. And um, that, and that makes a big difference. I think sometimes you say, well, I mean, I think, you know, for instance, like I, I can't imagine here's a decision. I mean, it's like life or death. It's like a war almost. But what it's like a mother with an ill child, perhaps, you know, not taking care of that child is not an option. You you have to no matter what. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think a lot of people actually, you know what? That's not fair. I don't want to say a lot of people. I think that we kind of live in a world now where there's an out for almost everything. If you need to get out of something, you can. You can text someone, I'm going to be late. You can call them on your cell phone, I'm going to be late. You can cancel something if you don't want to go. You can put the internet between you and somebody else. Like, I think what you're describing is that's the kind of accountability that, like, only you can decide. As an like as a person who is doing the running, you either make the decision that you finish or you don't. It's very black and white. And so what I'm hearing you say is like that's the type of decision that you need to de determine that you're going to make. That's almost the equivalent to like a muscle that you would work because you have to practice that. That's just. Yeah. 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 I you know, I think. 
for instance, let's say you're you're on a you know like it's the 1700s and you're on a sailing ship and you're going across the ocean and you're in a terrible storm. Um, it, you know you don't really have any option but to press on. You can't really turn around. <laughs> and um, that's kind of the the way I felt. I felt that I also um, had responsibility for a shipload of passengers, meaning women. Okay. And that the women themselves didn't know how important this was, okay, because a lot of them criticized me for it, actually, at the time. But I knew that people would think less of women's physical capability or they would it would reinforce their belief that women were weak and unable to finish something they began, which is always what they said. Women are always barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. Um, and I, I realized I had to finish so that they knew they could do something exceptional, that they are physically and mentally capable of running 26.2 miles. And um, and the world needed to know that women could do that, because if I didn't finish, they'd say, see, women just can't do it. They can't hack it. <laughs> That's what everybody was saying. And yeah. they still say that. They still say that. Well, and right now, it's something like 56, 58 percent of race participants are female it's like it's nearing 60 percent at least in the u.s and that number is growing like in european races so it's just goes to show at, at a certain point if they really couldn't do it then they probably wouldn't be signing up for it in droves so this is really f from what you're talking about with 261 fearless it really just seems like it's creating a space where people feel like they have support because being an athlete in general, I feel like the more that you talk about it and the more that you have a community that's supporting you, the easier it becomes to break through, you know, any insecurity or when you're, you know, having a down training season, or even if there is an injury or you're just getting into something, whatever the case is, it seems like I know for a fact I could not, be doing what I'm doing if I had to do it in a vacuum without anybody else. I know it yeah. was impossible. So what you're mm -hmm. doing is really trying to create an environment where it's like, no, you're not alone in wanting to do this and, and don't put yourself in a corner because someone else says you need to be there. Um, you know, go find out for yourself whether you can do this because we know you can. You know, I always say that um, on, a, on my list of training tips, my my second most important training tips is to find a buddy because if you have a buddy and it doesn't have to be a specific person who you meet exactly at a certain time, but let's say, you know, um, that the, your local running store has a running group uh, or you have a, a local club or a group of women who meet at five o'clock in the morning. It, I mean, they are highly motivating because you won't keep them waiting and you won't second guess yourself. So you say, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. And you were telling me earlier about, you know, when you when you ran your first half marathon, you thought seriously, uh, questioned seriously if, if you'd be able to do a marathon because you you were so exhausted after the half marathon. But I, I would imagine at a certain level you did sit back and look and say, thousands and thousands of other women have run a, a marathon um, after they've run a half marathon and they had the same doubts I do. I, I think I can overcome this. So that's important just to have that knowledge. But boy, if somebody's out there waiting in the dark or the rain for you, it makes all the difference. And I, and I think back on that, that first little coach, you know, who, you know, he was 50 and I was 19 
um, and he was helping me run. And part of part of the the uh, reason of my success is that he was always there in the afternoon at four o'clock. He was always there. And if I didn't show up, he acted really disappointed, not from his point of view, but from the fact that he said, if you like to run, you know, you really need to do it every day. And so so that was really important to, for a kid to learn and and help uh, help with the belief. So, hey, yeah, sure, you can do it alone. And 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 after I uh, moved away and I had to do all my training by myself you know, really hard, lonely training. I did all by myself. But by that time, I already knew, you know, I, in a way, I was my own best buddy because I was so highly motivated and I was very ambitious. Yeah, I think, you know, running, so my, the training run I had told you about, it was so funny. I came to work on that Monday and I have a colleague who, you know, he's a big runner and he said, hey, how'd it go this weekend? And I said, you know, I, you know, I cried. So there's that. I ran 13.1 miles. I essentially ran a half marathon by myself. It wasn't even a race environment. It was running from my house out to Virginia and back home. And that's something that I'd never done before. And so, I, you know, at the time I came home and my fiance was like, you know, how to go. And I, you know, burst into tears. And my first thought was, you know, can I really do this? And his response was, it's not even a matter of whether you can do it or not. You know, you can do it. But how come the first thing you didn't say was, I'm so proud of myself that I ran 13. Who cares if I stopped eight times? Who cares if I cried on the overpass at 395? Because that definitely happened. Who cares if it took me longer than I wanted it to take me? Because I did it. And that's something that I could have stopped. And I didn't stop, which was something that I had never really thought about while I was doing it was that I had the option to stop, but I never had that option. And so it was really neat to go out the next weekend and run 17 and be so empowered by, no, I can do hard stuff. It's just a matter of I've never done this before. So why as a person who has never done something goes out and does something that is hard and then the response is, wow, that was really hard. Of course it was hard. What a ridiculous premise <laughs> that I would go out and run it in that it would be easy. And I know I could have never done that unless I had the type of people that I have in my life keeping things in perspective for me and also, you know, keeping me accountable to the goals that I already have. Um, and I know you had mentioned earlier, which I think is hilarious that now I'm going on record that essentially talking about my training program and you telling me, hey, it's a really good idea if you were to run 23 miles and not just 20. Can you explain for listeners kind of why, what your calculus is for that? Like why add a 23rd mile run instead of stopping at 20? Yeah, Hannah, there are lots of reasons, and I'll try to keep them brief because scientifically they're they're fantastic, and we need um, we need a, a more data on this, but we're getting it now, so it's good. First of all, um, there's a, there's a joke in the marathon uh, or a saying. Let's say it's not a joke because the marathon is never a joke, but uh, <laughs> there are actually two marathons in every marathon: the first 20 miles and the last six. And the last six miles feels as bad as the first 20. It feels like it takes that long and it, it and um, and it's sort of soul destroying. 
Uh, and so the the uh, the idea that you can imagine and gut it out and and, and triumph in a marathon by only doing a 20 mile run as your long run, I think is very fallacious uh, because the last six, all kinds of other things happen. Uh, it feels very long, and you have even you go your mind begins to say. Um, I can remember when I couldn't even run, run six miles and now I'm into unknown territory and you are in unknown territory because your body has never been there before. One of the reason why it begins to f feel bad is because at between oh, 18 and 21 miles is when you lose your natural store of glycogen, which is your energy. And you are lucky being a woman because women can convert from that to burning your fat resources. Women as we all know, have a lot more fat than men. And that's a good thing for an endurance runner because it's a fuel source. But you've got to learn and the body's got to learn how to convert that. And the only way it's going to learn to convert that is to actually push it through that conversion barrier, which is at about 21 or 22 miles. So if you get to 23, then you say, oh, my God, I am so exhausted and I really need food desperately or whatever. But when you get then into the 26 mile race, your body is going to get to 23 and you say, OK, right, great. I, you know, three more miles to go. No problem. Just as when you ran the 17 miles. Remember when you got to 13, you said, OK, this is not so bad. I can make it to 17. Your body remembers the, the work it did before. So that's why I say it. I'd like. And the other reason is, is, is just because, you know, I really like you to enjoy that first marathon. And I'd like you to get to to the end and say, hey, that's really, really terrific. I did that. I'm tired, but I did that rather than boo-hoo-hooing the last 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Catherine. My, so my marathon is March 1st, 2020, and I get married on March 14th, 2020. And so it's um, it's a really interesting kind of two weeks for me from the standpoint that that's doing this I mean and there's gonna there is an episode all about why I'm doing this in the first place it has teed up this season but having the wedding be coming after it it's kind of like you know there are these two really kind of monumental times in my life and they're so close together uh, and I did that on purpose and so that's why it's really neat to be talking to the people that I'm talking to and be talking to the runners that I'm talking to because it's really putting in perspective that this is very much as monumental as something like getting married or making a big move or choosing a new job because it completely changes who you are and really just kind of helps hone in on like what your purpose is. And from talking to you for the last, you know, 40 plus minutes, the, the thing for me is like you, your purpose has been, to get women to a place to where they're confident and they're not fearful, but they're fearless instead. And so how do you see, you know, the future of 261 Fearless move, continuing to move in that direction? You're in 11 countries right now. What do you think is kind of the next step for that organization to really kind of get it to the place you want it to be at? Okay, two things. First of all, um, Hal Higdon, the noted coach and, and author of running books, uh, said, when you run a marathon, it's something that nobody can ever take away from you. 
It's like having a baby or getting a PhD. Nobody can take it away from you. And um, so that's, that's what it is. The marathon is life changing. Um, and I'm so glad you're doing it actually before the wedding um, because you then can use the time to recover after the, the marathon to, to do something that, that helps you be uplifted and have fun and, and kick back. Um, because, um, after, um, after marathon in a funny way, it's like having a baby you, a few days later, um, you go through a kind of a postpartum depression, which is, which is normal because you've used up energy and you're tired. Um, and the, the adrenaline is at an all time low. So planning a, a wedding and having fun, will get that adrenaline back up there really pretty fast. Um, and I tell people not to worry about this time and just to, to, to relax, go do something fun. Um, and, and, and work it back into your system. Okay. Now with 261 Fearless, where is it going? Um, we, we really are doing a lot of really great things, I think, in terms of empowering women. The program is not just uh, about running per se, but it uses running as the vehicle to empower women because it is easy, cheap, and totally accessible. And we're also giving them a community. We talked about that in this podcast. We're giving them friends and we're letting them know that, that running also does other things for them. It gives them health. It gives them a sense of their own body and an appreciation for their body. And it also sets a huge example in the, in the household. Not all these women have, you know, great marriages, but when they have kids and the kids see mommy going out for a run or a walk, they're seeing something really important, which is that she's taking time for herself. She values herself because women get often, very often give so much away to everybody else. And then they feel like a martyr for themselves, which is a wrong feeling. They should, should take time for themselves. Cause if you're not ultimately good for yourself first, you're not going to be too good for other people or certainly not your best. Anyway. So, so the important thing though, is to, to reach out into these communities and, and help women to get started. And uh, so we offer a program uh, for women to be coaches, to help to create the forum and the, and the group, the group dynamic in a fun and safe and empowering way. I think safety is really important. We also give women the sense that they have a safe community to be in. Very often women are afraid to go out alone or they're just afraid for whatever reason to take the first step. So I am really hopeful that this is a program. Uh, it's, it will continue to grow and, and, and grow really widely. I think that we can do a tremendous amount with it. It's not about training to be an Olympic athlete. It's not about even being competitive. It's, it's a totally non-judgmental, welcoming environment. I've always felt that running is one of the greatest examples of diversity, inclusion, and respect. And 261 Fearless aims to embody those examples. We, so we would welcome all of you guys to uh, be a member uh, or start a club. Um, you have to take a training program, but you can find more information on www.261fearless.org. O-R-G. That's so helpful. I was even going to ask you, can you tell us where to find you? And you already did it. You're so good at this. <laughs> well, we have a really good website, very interactive. And as I say, we'd love to hear from you. That's great. So before we close this interview down, can I ask you one question? Sure. What is one piece of advice to someone who doesn't run but would like to start? I would say put on your shoes, 
and go out the door. And that doesn't have to be fancy shoes. It's just anything comfortable. And walk around the block or whatever you can do. Maybe you can only walk to your mailbox or maybe to the end of your driveway. Try to give me 10 minutes of walking, but I want you to do it every day. And then I want you to just walk a little bit further. And then when you've done that to the point where you can maybe walk 30 minutes a day, uh, I'd like you to start just jogging from one lamppost or one mailbox to another. Maybe or just just look at your watch and jog a minute and then walk and then jog a minute. And then pretty soon you start stringing the minutes together, make it two minutes, three minutes. And then pretty soon you're jogging the whole way. Don't think about speed. Don't think that people are watching you. Start. Well, Catherine, it has been so nice to talk to you. Everything that you've imparted on us today has been awesome. And I thank you for taking the time 18 hours ahead of me to talk. And it's just, it's been great to talk to you. Hannah, all the luck in the world, not only with your upcoming marathon, but your upcoming marriage. Uh, They're both very long journeys. And you will have ups and downs, but in the end, they'll be very, very life-giving. I wish you the best. Thank you so much.